When most people think about the automotive industry, Washington, D.C. does not necessarily pop into mind. But as all of you know, so much of what goes on in the auto industry emanates from the nation's capital. And so that's where we're going today. Earlier this year, we were at the Washington, D.C. Auto Show. Not so much to look at the cars there, but more to sit down and talk with top-level policy people and lobbyists who work there. Joining me on today's show are Margot Oge, the Director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the Environmental Protection Agency. Jake Jones, the Executive Director of External Affairs and Public Policy for Daimler. And Pat Davis, the Program Manager for Vehicle Technologies at the Department of Energy. Whether we're talking about safety, emissions, fuel economy, or even distracted driving, these are the people who have their pulse on what's happening in Washington and how that will affect the auto industry. So stick with us here, because we'll be back in just a moment to hear what they have to say. From the floor of the Washington, D.C. Auto Show, this is Auto Line, And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Pat Davis, the program manager for vehicle technologies at the Department of Energy, is involved in a myriad amount of different technologies that go into the automobile. And just as importantly, the DOE is also involved in the infrastructures that are needed to transmit the energy for alternative types of powertrains. So Pat's got some good insights on this, as we're about to hear. We are primarily an R&D organization but we uh, perform R&D and, and try to solve uh, problems related to improved energy, uh, uh, you know, reducing our dependence on petroleum and, and improved fuel economy of vehicles. And that takes everything from lightweighting vehicles to improved combustion engines to uh, batteries for electric drive to electric motors, you name it pretty much if it's under the hood. Uh, or in part of the car where we're interested in it. So you're interested in everything, or is there anything that you particularly really bore in on? You know, it's mainly about drive systems, uh, things that improve fuel economy. So most of it's about drive systems, and you sort of stray away from that a little bit when it comes to lightweighting, which isn't really a drive system, but if you know... But it affects them. It affects uh, the fuel efficiency of vehicles, so uh, definitely uh, have some interest there. And also do some work in fuels technology. Should also mention there's a piece of our program about 10%, which is about deployment, getting technologies that are available today to be, you know, adopted uh, more than what they are. Okay, for example, what? Well, for exam example, uh, flex fuel vehicles, natural gas vehicles in the medium duty sector. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fleets, uh, local municipalities who want to use, uh, who, who operate trash trucks or other uh, type of delivery vehicles that uh, might you, see, you might see being used by UPS or others. Um, you know, could we do uh, could we do more efficient vehicles there? Could we do vehicles that are using an alternative fuel that displace petroleum? Uh, so those kind of things. You know, you mentioned flex fuel vehicles a few years back. You know, Detroit especially was really hot about these things, and then nothing seems to have happened because it's really hard to go find E85 anywhere. Yeah, so I, sh I shouldn't say a anywhere, because yeah. in certain states there's plenty of it, but that tends to be very concentrated in the Midwest. Right, so a lot has been happening on the vehicle side. Um, number one, you know, a few years ago, the domestic automakers had pledged to have 50% of their fleet be flex fuel by 2012, and they're on track to do that. So it is sort of a bit of a, a you know, chicken or the egg thing. 
Do you have E85 st stations before you have vehicles? Can you have vehicles before you have the stations? So the good news is more and more of these vehicles are getting on the road. Today, probably only about 7 million, 8 million vehicles out there are flex fuel. Uh, but in the very near future, we're going to have tens of millions of vehicles. And at that point, you're going to start to see a lot more uh, E85 stations available. Oh, we will see more stations Oh, absolutely. Coming. Yeah. What, what makes you so confident in saying that? Uh, have the gas station people told you they're going to make that investment? Well, there is some growth already. I mean, if you were to track, I don't have a graph with me. I wish I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the growth of E85 has been steady. Um, it'll continue to grow. Um, I would concede your point, though, that we don't see any point in the very near future where it's going to be on every corner. Uh, first of all, we don't even have the ethanol production capacity in the U.S. Uh, to, to provide that fuel for everyone. Pretty much right now, most of the capacity is being used in E10 gasoline. Uh -huh. So there's not really a, a huge push for that, but it'll happen. It'll come in time. One of the problems with E85 is that it seems to me that the, the ethanol producers or the, the blenders certainly have priced it a little too high, i.e., as you know, you with pure alcohol, you get about a 30% reduction in fuel economy. Mm -hmm. It's E85, so you get about a 25% reduction there, so some cars with knock sensors, in my experience, don't see as much of a drop-off in it. But that tells me that unless the E85 fuel is at least... 25% cheaper than gasoline. As a consumer, it doesn't make sense to buy it. Yeah, and you see, you see that fluctuate. I mean, just like uh -huh. any commodity, uh -huh. the price of E85, the price of gasoline, the price of diesel is going up and down, and they don't necessarily go up and down together. No, they don't. So there are times when gasoline's high and ethanol's a little low, and all of a sudden it looks really attractive, and then it can flip a little bit. So it, it's not consistent, and that is a problem. But, can, but can, the good okay. thing about flex fuel is doesn't matter. You, you, you can, go whichever you way go. you want yeah, to. Right. Exactly. Talk a little bit, too, about infrastructure for electric vehicles. That's got to be a hot button for you as well. It is. Uh, well, two major things happening with that. Under the Recovery Act, we have 23,000 charging points being installed that would support electric drive vehicles. So we're... Uh, uh, sort of just in the position where we're starting to install those now. And these are publicly available places? Uh, many of them are uh, home chargers, uh -huh. but, uh, but thousands of them are, are public. But you're talking, what, 220 volts in the right, case so of the three, home? Right, so there's three levels of charging. When I say 23,000 charging points, I'm, the vast majority of those are level two. So level one is the plug that we, everybody has in the side of their wall. That's level one, 110 volt, normally 15, 20 amps. Uh, level two is the 220 volt, normally 30 amps. And uh, level three, sometimes called fast charging, is a much higher voltage. And, it's and like 440, right? It's 480, and okay. the current is they're still under some debate exactly what the current limits are. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. so, uh, so of these 23,000 points, most of them are level one, or no, or level two? Most are said. level two. Of course, okay. everybody has level one. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so we're doing that, and then I, I don't know if you... Uh, Listen to the State of the Union the other night, but uh, President Obama talked about uh, a million plug-in vehicles on the road by 20 Seems pretty ambitious to me. What, actually, actually not so. Um, I, I mean, it is, it is an ambitious yeah. goal from the standpoint, you know, you don't want an easy goal. You want something that inspires, you right? you got to stretch, right? And, right. The Sputnik and, moment kind of a thing, right? Right. But, you know, we have, I personally, have done, uh, you know, just a little bit of analysis looking at 
if you look at all the vehicle announcements that have happened and you look at just media reports on what volume those vehicles are, are planning to be produced in, and you add them all up, you get very close to a million vehicles. And these are the ones that have been announced. Um, you know, there are many vehicles out there where we don't know what the production uh -huh. uh, is going to be. Uh, Toyota announced their, their new plug-in hybrid. Uh, uh, Ford announced the, the C-Max uh, plug-in hybrid. We, we just had Jonathan Browning from Volkswagen here saying, I think he said 2013 time frame. That's I'll, right, I'll and we don't even know what the, the production of those vehicles are going to be. Uh -huh. But just adding up the, the, uh, the projected production of vehicles like the Volt and the Leaf and um, and the Ford Focus, you know, you get very close to a million, even over a million. Mm -hmm. So I, we think it's doable. What about CNG, compressed natural gas? Uh, Honda said it would sell it in all 50 states in the, in, with its next generation. Yeah, we like CNG, but we like it specifically and probably most favorably in the near term for these sort of medium-duty vehicles, fleet, fleet. fleet vehicles, because you, you can establish that centralized infrastructure. Um, other than that, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a mature technology, and certainly we don't have anything against CNG, but there is an infrastructure out there, and you'd have to establish it. And we do wonder, you know, how many different infrastructures can we support? Great um, point. You're not going to have natural gas everywhere, gasoline everywhere, E85 everywhere, charging everywhere, hydrogen everywhere. Along the way, the market's going to make some choices. Real good. Well, Pat Davis, thanks so much for coming in. Very interesting discussion. Thank this you. is terrific. I, I yeah, it. I really it. enjoyed thanks. this. Yeah, you bet. Margot Oge is the director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the Environmental Protection Agency. That puts her in charge of everything the EPA deals with from mobile sources. If it moves, then Margot is involved with it. And most people will be surprised to learn about all the different technologies that the EPA gets involved with, including some technology it's come up with on its own. We have been working hydraulic hybrid for over 15 years. And it is a partnership, it's a government industry partnership, it's perfect. Government puts resources, industry puts resources, and we join our technical staff, not just you know money, to develop this hydraulic hybrid. And we have come a long way. Like today, there are probably dozens of refuge trucks uh -huh. in the market, both Michigan and Florida with hydraulic hybrid uh, systems. And that's a great systems. application yeah. because it's a garbage trucks. And also we have uh, UPS and FedEx um, vans. About 40 of them are going to be funded with the DOE uh, city program, you know, the clean city program. But so hydraulic hybrid is, is um, you know, we don't select, you know, technologies, you know, we're technology neutral, but it just happened that our engineers have innovated in this area. You know, we're holding over 60 patents on hydraulic hybrid. And, and the concept is pretty simple, really. It's similar to an electric hybrid. So instead of having batteries, you have um, uh, accumulators. Instead of having um, a, an electric motor, you have a, a hydraulic motor. Uh, and the difference is that the cost of hydraulic hybrid hybrids are significantly lower than, than, than electric, maybe one-third. So what we're going to do with, um, with Chrysler is to put our resources together, take a year. Actually, uh, we have an agreement that by July of 2012, um, Sergio and Lisa Jackson are going to drive the first vehicle on the road, minivan. 
So I hope it will work. You know, we're going to continue working on the electronic system and the hydraulic, and Chrysler is going to do a lot of work on uh, things that are going to be very important, the packaging, you know, the noise, uh -huh. the vibration, all uh -huh. that stuff. Why has it taken so long to get into light vehicles? Mm -hmm. It makes more sense on a heavy duty and medium duty, and that's where the first success. And it's easy so, to package, And it's though. easy to package, that's, that's it. When it comes to the lighter duty, um, I think the issue of packaging, I mean, we know the technology works. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that you're going to get um, significant fuel economy you know, benefits. S you know, uh, city driving, you get 60% improvement. That's pretty big. That's huge. That's huge. So we know it works. There is no question it works. We have done a lot of research to, to, to put forward lighter weight materials, so we're working with graphite instead of steel. So the systems, although heavy, they're much lighter than they were. So, but the, the question is, and the challenge is exactly what, what you put your finger into, packaging, and making sure that for the light duty sector, you're addressing issues like noise. Okay, so that's why it hasn't taken on. So minivan, I think it's a perfect. You have light more duty. room have more to package room. it. And if it works in, a, in this type of minivan, then you can see it in SUVs and other. Very interesting, as, and as you point out, uh, a lot lower cost than going with today's batteries, yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah. But all these technologies, we're, we're really excited about all these technologies. We don't want to select anything. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, because there's still so much room to reduce the cost of electric right. you know, powertrain. Um, so but I find it so interesting that because the EPA works with almost every single car company in the world, you've learned a lot of things. And that's what allowed the EPA to come up and design and develop its own hydraulic hybrid. But, but also, you know, it, it provides an opportunity for EPA to be viewed, not just this tough regulator, you know. Because although we are regulators, we want to do common sense things. Uh -huh. Because if we don't, nobody wins, you know, everybody loses. I mean, what's the point of having a very clean car that is very expensive and nobody buys it? Everybody right. loses. Right. Our industry loses. The environment loses. The economy loses. So, 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 but you know, having the ability to work with the car companies is something that is non-regulatory. It's also, I think, very important element in the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. You said that you didn't want the EPA just to be seen as a tough regulator, but now everyone in the industry is talking about post yes. 2017 CAFE regulations. What's your thoughts going along those lines? Because there's a, a wide range of maybe establishing uh, 42 miles per gallon as the target or maybe 62 miles per gallon as the target. Where does Margot Oge come down yeah, in that you thinking? Know, um, I think we have um, a tremendous opportunity to work with uh, our sister agency, NHTSA, and the state of California to bring about a national harmonized program. I mean, we get it. We understand the importance that the industry has for regulatory certainty, the importance that the industry is placing to have one national program. And that is really the basis behind the announcement that we made last week, working very hard with the state of California, so we are all on the same time frame. And our hope is that we're going to end up in the same place mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You know, John, it's, it is very unfortunate that um, people have concentrated on this 6% improvement annually, uh, the, six, the 62 MPG equivalent in, in 2025. Uh, 
We have made no decisions. Actually, what the agencies have done is put out some technical analysis, and they are that, just technical analysis, the preliminary technical analysis. And if you are to look at the 6% improvement, the 62 MPG, the costs are horrendous. Mm -hmm. So we don't know where we're going to end up because more analysis needs to happen. But at the end of the day, you need to develop standards that are cost effective. Right, that people can that go people out and buy. That people can go and buy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you can put the pieces together and figure out how we're going to do this. We're going to do it in a careful way. We're going to look at cost of these technologies. We're going to look at the benefits that we're achieving, and we're going to look at the overall impacts to, to the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and $3,600 per car, that's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that's what our preliminary analysis says right now. Mm -hmm. so, so what I would tell to your viewers, we have made no decisions. We're actually in the beginning of doing very detailed work with each one of the companies. We're going to sit down with California, with NITS and ourselves, to talk to each one of the companies because, as you know, everybody's in a different place and we're going to be sensitive to the fact that some co companies have more co trucks than cars, mm -hmm. some companies have more cars and very few trucks, and come up with a program that doesn't undermine the competitiveness of the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like a very sensible approach to me. Jake Jones is the executive director of external affairs and public policy for Daimler. Yeah. Daimler. Every single automaker that sells cars in the United States has its own lobbyist in Washington. They need to know what kind of policies the country is intent on implementing and figuring out how that may affect them. And for Daimler, that doesn't only involve passenger cars from Mercedes-Benz. It also includes the company's heavy trucks. If just walking around the show now just to get the feel of all the technology that's being introduced by all the companies. I mean, the companies really are making the investment to introduce the technology to get us to the next level. The question is whether or not the infrastructure is going to be there and whether or not the customers are going to accept it. I think that's the part we're uncertain about. Well, those, that's a big uncertainty right there, because if you're talking hydrogen, for example, we need a whole new hydrogen infrastructure. That's exactly right. I mean, the beauty now is that if you walk out of your house, within a seven-mile radius of your house, you know that you can go to a gas station. Mm -hmm. And so even when you chance it, you're a little bit low on fuel, you think, okay, I'm going to pass a gas station, I can find something. And even on the highways, you know that every 20 to 30 miles, you're actually going to find a fueling station. If all of a sudden now we're saying to people, here's the new technology, the technology of the future, the ones that are going to allow you to drive with zero emissions so that you're actually doing the right thing for the environment, but at the same time you maintain your mobility, people still want that comfort to know that if I'm running a little low on hydrogen, where do I find this stuff? And what is this, this thing that I don't really, I'm not familiar with? Mm -hmm. And so it's real challenges for us. Well, it's a challenge for society in general. We had uh, Pat Davis on here yes. earlier from the Department of Energy, and he was saying, look, we can't go out and build a whole hydrogen infrastructure and a whole new electrical grid and an ethanol or biofuel one and, right. you know, fill in the blank. It, it's, you know, what he's saying is at some point the market's got to decide which way are we going to go. And that's the sort of the challenge, though, is that for companies, this is no small feat to invest. Because all of us are operating from the assumption that we want to help governments achieve their goals, which is the 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So if you work backwards from that, that means that by 2035, you need to have this technology that's the answer in place in the market. And it needs to be 100% of your sales by 2035. Uh -huh. So we've got to make some huge bets on where things are going now with the hope 
that it will actually be accepted and that the government will be a partner and say, okay, we're going to help you along the way. And so we've asked the government not to pick winners and losers. Like, for example, I know there's lots of uh, strong sentiments about plug-in hybrids, for example. Everyone thinks that that's the answer, but that's only part of the answer. There are lots of other things that we need to do along the way. And so we would hope that the government would be supportive to say, let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh And that the government is going to help create incentives so that the market can work. And, And that's all we ask. But the Obama administration, you heard the president two nights ago say, we want a million electrics on the road in four years. So, I mean, it seems like they're picking their target. They they are picking target. And in the near term, uh, it may be easier, um, particularly if you see the number of companies that are introducing uh, battery electric vehicles and plug-in vehicles to the market in the near term. It may be easier to get that volume in the electric vehicle segment as opposed to uh, for fuel cell vehicles. But uh, are battery electric vehicles, are they the absolute answer to the future? I'm not sure. I mean, Americans have, which I sort of alluded to with this fuel thing, have a real issue with range anxiety. Um, And are you really going to buy a vehicle that gets you 40 miles or even 100 miles on a single charge, but you know that that's it? Uh What does that mean for trips to New York, which is 220 miles? Uh, do you drive to New York and you lay over for four hours? You lay over eight hours? You lay over overnight to allow your cars to charge and then continue on to New York? It really, battery electric is most likely a solution for urban environments. Where, but, where, where you are you going to plug in? Exactly, if you live in an apartment. Right. I mean, the, there's so many challenges. For example, we know that increasingly the world is becoming more urbanized. Uh, even in Washington, D.C., which is a very surprising place, we've found that 27% of people don't even own an automobile. Huh. So if we want to reach that market of people who are moving in urban areas, live in apartments, have no real way of charging their vehicle, we've got to be prepared to deal with some of these special challenges. And so battery electric, I think, is part of the solution, but it obviously isn't the ultimate solution. And so that's why we've got to be prepared to do a whole range of different things. Um, and, just, and, and I'll add to that. For the foreseeable future, I think we've had hybrids introduced uh, in the market for more than 10 years now, and they're still about 3% of the market, that's it. So it shows that unlike electronics, like the iPhone, for example, or your iPad, for example, where you had this rapid adoption in the market, it's not exactly the same with vehicles. It takes much longer for the generations of new technology. Absolutely. To be well, as you know, you know, the average car today is $30,000. It's not like the same as spending a couple of hundred bucks on a phone. That's exactly right. I would agree. And so there's always sort of this assumption, I think, on the part of people who just say, tell the industry to do more, do more, do more. The technology will be accepted. There's sort of this assumption that it's exactly the same as spending a few hundred dollars on a phone. Uh-huh. But in reality, you're right, this is a major purchase for most people. Uh, second to their education and their home, probably the most expensive purchase they're going to make during the course of their lives. Right. So it's a serious investment. Okay, what else? What else are you working on these days? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think distracted driving, you're absolutely oh, yeah, right. Oh, big one, right. It's a big, big issue. I, I, it never goes away. And it's a, we all know that it's the responsibility of all of us. Uh, we think we have something unique that we do. Uh, Our company. What's that? uh, The Mercedes-Benz Driving Academy. Amen. That that we're working to launch in the U.S. I.e. training people. Exactly. And starting with young people, training them about the responsibility that they have, not only as the driver, but also as the passenger in the car. 
Because oftentimes, you know, young people going back and forth between sporting events or with their friends in the car, there is actually not this sort of responsibility around the car saying, let's help this driver concentrate no. on what he's doing. And so that's the kind of thing we want to teach young people early, too, uh -huh. that everyone has a responsibility to make sure that they're being safe. How's this program work? And so this is an academy that we run. It's like our own driving school. Uh, we've launched a pilot in London. We're now talking to officials in California. Our hope is to launch this new pilot program in California this year in the U.S. as well. So, okay, I'm, I'm a 16-year-old. How do you're, I get involved and in you're, it? And you're a 16-year-old, and hopefully we can even catch you even before you're 16, maybe even 14 when you're just mm -hmm. starting to think about driving. And so we're actually going to engage through the PTA and through schools to try and get parents to sign their kids up for a driving school where you come on the weekend and we put you on a closed track and we teach you about the responsibilities of driving a vehicle, but we also teach you about the distractions that could exist and how do you respond to those. To teach people early to be responsible. Mm -hmm. uh, driving skills as well, I mean, I, I've always right. said... Driving on ice and all, all those Excellent. things that you think about, because most times you take driving school, they teach you how to, how to signal to change lanes, how to make lefts, you know, how, how to stop, but they don't teach you really how to respond to a situation if something runs into the road in front of you. Sort of how to respond to ice and your car starts to skid. Those kind of things that, are, we, that some schools teach and we feel is absolutely essential but we also want to get at this whole idea of being responsible young drivers early. And we think that that's the key. And that's something that's new and unique. And I, and I think it's something that's consistent with us as Mercedes-Benz. No, I, I, I love what you're saying here. Because, you know, when I got my driver's license, I never drove at night. I never drove in rush hour traffic. Never drove on the freeway. Right. Never drove in snow and ice. Right. But they said, hey, you right. guessed right on enough questions. You that's got a license. Right. So, you, so you're qualified. <laughs> you're very qualified. And see, I, I, I learned to drive in a rural area. And so for me, it was very different. As long as we could avoid the tractors, we were good. <laughs> but, but there was never really any skill. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. And, and that's what we've got to start thinking about doing in the future. Well, Jake Jones, that's fantastic to hear Thank about. And thanks so much for stopping by and bringing us up to speed. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks, John. Good deal. I hope you enjoyed today's show coming from the nation's capital. By the way, I interviewed more people in Washington than we could fit into today's show, and you can see more of them on our website. But that brings us to the end of this show. So for all of us here at AutoLine, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.